Welcome to Healthy Perspectives Podcast with Jeremiah, where we provide clinical perspectives on current social and cultural issues. And don't forget, you can subscribe at Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe at any or all of them. You can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Getter, Twitter, and many other social media sites. Or you can email us at healthy perspectives with an S at protonmail.com. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Today, we are going to get right after a topic. The question of the day is, can censorship go too far? More and more, uh, we are hearing about people being blocked from this or taken off of that. And, you know, sometimes there's probably healthy reasons and healthy explanations for it. But do we really know when censorship goes too far? Today, I'm going to take that on. Now, the short answer is, yeah, it can go too far. And yes, we can tell when it has, if we're willing to pay attention and do the work. So the question is, if censorship can go too far, and we know that to be a reality in the mental health world, how then can we protect people from bad things? That's a tough one, right? Because most of the time we protect because of our fear, not because of a fear that may exist even in that other person. Sometimes it does. And that, that triggers us to be protective, but oftentimes we out of fear for them are acting in ways that are frankly unhealthy and not wise. And so things like pornography, should there be a filter for that? I think so. Why? Because it targets young people in particular. Uh, Misinformation, lies, things like vaccines, masks, economic responsibilities, uh, you know, these, these international affairs. Should we protect people from those kinds of bad things? Many people would say yes. And I would say yes only if they can't protect themselves because the, that's the wrong question is how can, how then can we protect people from bad things? We can't bad things happen in this world. The real question is who needs protection? It's assumed that the mentally incapable are the ones who need protection. And yet we protect people for all kinds of reasons. People who are completely capable of protecting themselves, every time we protect them, we weaken them. The right question is who needs protection? Anyone that's incapable of helping themselves, protecting themselves. That's going to be a very small number of people, not a large number of people. Small. Small like kids. Why? Because kids haven't fully developed. Let's just talk for a second. I'm going to sidestep here. The brain development. We know 
that the brain continuously develops until about 25 years old. Does that mean we should wait until people are 25 before we accept them into adulthood? I don't think that's necessary. At the end of the day, I don't. Why? Because this funny thing happens around puberty. Around puberty, uh, we begin to uh, fuse the left and the right hemispheres right across the middle. And what that does is it allows us more efficient uh, interpretation and communication with the left and the right hemispheres. And it starts the process for abstract thinking. The idea that there can be 10 right answers, 10 wrong answers. Is there one that's maybe more correct than the others? Sure. But if you're on the right side, you're not wrong. You know, just because you didn't pick the best right answer doesn't mean you are bad or did anything wrong. And somebody entering puberty is right around the time frame that that begins. So you give somebody a good, you know, five or six years to develop that. And voila, most of them are 18, 19, and 20 years old. So adulthood is pretty good gauge. Now, you know, whether we got that right on purpose or on accident, that 18-year-old time frame is pretty close to where, uh, you know, that adult abstract thinking has, has sort of materialized to a sufficient point. Uh, That is not going to be the case with every 18, 19, or 20-year-old. But there are ways of going about it if you've got an 18 or a 19 or a 20-year-old that is incapable of navigating in that manner, uh, in which you can keep them legally a child during that time. It exists, I know, because I've worked in crisis care, and I've seen it in place. So in the event that we are talking about children having elective uh, procedures like transgender uh, surgeries. I think that's a protected class. They're making a life decision during a time period in which they, in all reality, some are more mature, and I get that, but oftentimes they're making life decisions when they cannot even get close to grasping the reality of what that's going to mean. They just can't. You know, I mean, you think back to when you, for those of you who are over the age of 18 or 19, think back to when you were 18 or 19, right? Even then, it's on the fence line of being reasonable to make those major lifetime decisions. So kids, uh, another is the mentally handicapped. That would be people with mental illnesses or physiological illnesses that affect the brain in such a manner that a person is incapable of protecting themselves. Uh, the the easy go-to there in terms of uh, understanding it would be uh, somebody with like psychosis or somebody who is mentally retarded. Um, they may not be able to protect themselves because they have a mental handicap. Their brain does not function in a way that is sufficient to protect themselves with any reasonable effort. So then the question becomes, what about the other protected classes? What about people based on race and religion and, I don't know, physical handicap? Those are not mental illnesses. Those are not mental handicaps. And we do not need to censor those particular groups. 
We just don't. If they can't handle their business, but they have all the makeup to handle their business, they've got some education to do about themselves. They need some. They need to do their own work, their own identity work. Why are they not managing their thoughts and their emotions and their spiritual world? So we don't censor for those. Or at least we shouldn't. And I'll explain why more in a few minutes. So how do we protect those incapable of protecting themselves? Is censorship really a great protection? In some cases, yes. It actually can be a helpful thing for somebody who is incapable of navigating it themselves. And honestly, mostly I would not suggest it's kids. I wouldn't. I'm all about protecting kids. Like that's a big thing in my world. And yet kids have the ability to filter if they have typical mental capacity. They have the ability to say, hmm, I know that watching a bunch of people uh, kill one another is probably not the best thing for my psyche. So I need to filter that, meaning I either need to not watch it or I need to uh, definitely make sure I have good conversation around it so that I don't ever get confused between reality and fantasy. A typical teenager, 15, 16, 17, can do that kind of a conversation and do it very effectively. So don't necessarily think you have to censor that much from children. The laws, the laws are in place so that those who want to manipulate the protected classes, those, those would be like kids or the mentally incapable, right? Mentally handicapped. Uh, there's laws that are in place that if somebody were to target, say the elderly who cannot, they, you know, maybe they've got some dementia going on and, you know, somebody comes in and starts stealing all of their money. You know, there are laws in place to go after those who victimize those incapable of protecting themselves. That's not always going to be the best fix, but it's in place. It's there. And the same is true when it comes to kids. There's laws in place for that. And that's good. Ethics regulate risk, right? There's, there's ethical principles in most professions. So if you're working with kids or you're working with the elderly and you take advantage of them, uh, you could be in breach of your ethics and therefore lose your career and also potentially be prosecuted for breaking the law. So those things, you know, they overlap a bit. So how do we protect those incapable of protecting themselves? That's a tough question. At the end of the day, I mean, we look at censorship, we look at laws, we look at ethics, but how do we really protect them? Number one, we cannot protect them by isolating them. They have to be brought into the conversations in the fold to the level at which they're capable. Like if, if you're going to have a conversation with children about human sexuality, there's certain things that are off the table. It's not because they won't one day be able to handle it, but because you have to filter at a level that's appropriate for their developmental developmental stage. Does that make sense? I hope that's all making sense. All right. I'm going to move on from the how to protect them 
uh, having, I know, not giving you enough information because I'm going to give you a little to do at the end. So I want to go ahead and just make the next step into talking about the natural human design. This is somebody who is typical. In other words, they fall in that unprotected class, right? They're mentally stable-ish. That would be like children that that are, are developing at appropriate ways or inappropriate ways at appropriate stages or adults, uh, you know, elderly who still have their wits about them, stuff like that. They're mentally stable. Number one, I cannot emphasize this enough. Human connection. Human connection. That's why isolating them is so dangerous. Isolating them from connection, but also from information that may help them make better decisions. Verbal processing. There's this process that we do. Um, We do it verbally, written, in all kinds of different ways. In the therapeutic world, I'm often talking about processing. How do you process? How do you learn? How do you grow? The verbal processing part is, is that part where we test our idea. We test it in a group or with an individual. And we say, you know, this is something that I'm exploring, da, 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 da. And we get the feedback. That is so critical if we are talking about the human design. I also want to describe when the mentally uh, ill becomes a thing, right? Even those who are typical and well can run into these these moments, uh, these, these moments where their brain needs a reboot because they are saying the same argument over and over and over, but it's not changing anything. So the reboot in adult language sounds kind of like this. You get into an argument with, you know, a a friend or a, a partner or family member and you're so fixated on how you've been wronged that you say the same thing in like five different ways. And each time they come back and they defend their position, but you keep saying the same thing. Yes, you change the words, but you don't actually change your argument. You use new words because you're creative like that. But what's happening inside the brain is you're spinning. You're saying the same thing with different words, of course, but over and over and over. And you don't actually get anywhere in the argument. Uh, you know, they can't see your view. You can't see their view because the brains are just spinning and spinning and spinning. You're saying the same thing over and over. So are they. In those situations, if you take a time out, a little break from what's going on and you reboot your brain like you would reboot a computer. In other words, you give yourself some time to calm the emotions because that's often what's, what's stimulated that spin cycle. Literally what will happen is you will re-engage your prefrontal cortex, your ability to make new meaning. If your prefrontal cortex is spinning 
and spinning and spinning with a fixation on only one thing, it is unable to bring in a new narrative. It can't do it. And so that timeout becomes a critical component. Now, some people can do that in a minute. Some people, it takes 10 minutes. Some people, it takes two days to really reboot the system when it comes to a particular argument. Now, obviously, my when I'm in therapy, I encourage people to get to that five-minute mark. Five minutes, you know, you, you can be a little bit dysfunctional for five minutes, and you're probably not going to screw everything up. I mean, it's possible, but it's unlikely. And so the reboot has to happen. So in other words, within relationships, we can all get to that dysfunctional phase, but it's temporary. That's the difference between a mentally ill and a typical person. A temporary lapse that lasts a few minutes um, and doesn't cause much damage is really truly not that big of a problem. Another natural human design, growth. I know I said it a little bit when I was talking about verbal processing, but growth is a natural human design. When we begin to transform ourselves into new, uh, better versions of ourselves, that's normal. That's a good thing. That's what we should be doing. When we get stale, stagnant, and we go in only the same direction we've always gone, unfortunately, that's, that goes against the human design. You are going to begin to feel that stagnation and you are going to begin to get uh, emotionally probably irritated, frustrated with yourself and it's going to come out at the people around you. Natural human design also means our spiritual connection. Now, I'm not here to tell you what your spiritual connection has to be. I am here to tell you that since the beginning of time, there has been this desire within us, this need within us to have some sort of spiritual connection. And we cannot just ignore that. It doesn't go away because it's it's not politically correct. It doesn't go away because we got hurt by our church. It doesn't like it doesn't go away. It's part of the design. Now I went on on all of that stuff because there are risks of censorship. And I wanted you to understand the human design first. Risks of censorship include several different things. But I'm going to highlight, I'm going to highlight a few. One, censorship is telling somebody they are incapable of figuring out the, the solution or the understanding on their own. You're telling them that they are a failure, that they are a victim. And that is not appropriate. Another is uh, we some lessons that we've learned from uh, s- such things as solitary confinement. As we take away a person's ability to uh, receive information because we're censoring it, it's similar, it's not identical, but it's similar to the effects of solitary confinement because it isolates and it segregates. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. And we know some things about solitary confinement. So these are going to be similar effects only maybe to a slightly lesser degree. Although I got to say, when we look at solitary confinement and the data around that kind of uh, approach, we do see similar effects, whether it's one day or 30 days of solitary confinement. 
meaning short durations still have massive impacts. In solitary confinement, uh, you get similar psychiatric effects as torture. Torture. Why? Because we are relational. Remember what I said, natural human design. We are relational. It's not an option. You don't get to say, I'm not relational. I mean, you can say whatever you want to say, but that doesn't make it reality. And that would be not reality. Anxiety goes up. Stress goes up. Depressive symptoms become more common. Emotional reactivity. In other words, your, your full your emotional cups, they spill over super fast. Poor impulse control. When you look at all of that stuff, you see greater uh, frequencies of violent outbursts, uh, argumentative behaviors, and stuff like that. In other words, you get exactly the opposite of what you're going for. You're going for peace, but what you're creating when you censor is chaos. You're creating chaos. You are on the bank of rigidity, and the only solution to overly rigid is overly chaotic. So we've, we've got to find that middle ground. It's just not an option, especially when it comes to censorship. We have to find that middle ground. I'm going to sidebar for a second and talk about that, that a little bit more. Is it possible? <laughs> this, this came to my mind as I was uh, trying to empathize with our, our political arenas. Right? We're, we're looking for the first time in, since I've been alive at the potential of a war that could be big enough to be considered World War III nuclear war, stuff like that. I mean, this, this, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping and praying it doesn't go that way. I, I don't want it to go that way uh, for lots of reasons, selfish reasons, but also world reasons. But is it possible that the greatest victim of censorship, this is going to be hard for, if, if you are out there and you're a Republican, this is going to be tough for you to hear. But the greatest victim with censorship is a Democrat? I know the way that that sounds, but let's think about it. In the, a lot of times, what we're seeing right now, and whether you agree with me or disagree with me, like let me know. Uh, but from my vantage point, it looks like anybody who disagrees with a Democrat right now is uh, marginalized. Is uh, you know, it, it is isolated. And if that's the case, and that's what it looks like, if that's the case, then their ability to think different than others is restricted. In other words, if you had an original thought, you can't voice it. That's an isolation of sorts. That's, that's a big deal. Because if we're going to empathize with Democrats and Republicans, which I try to do on this podcast, why? Because this isn't a political podcast. This is a healthy perspectives podcast. I challenge both Democrats and Republicans. And if anybody's feeling isolated, especially within their own group, it, we've got an increase of fear. And if we've got an increase of fear then they're going to toe the party line. So that was just a sidebar. 
I want to get back to the, the last risk I want to highlight for today when it comes to censorship. Narrative control. Narrative control eliminates checks and balances. When we are censored or being censoring of others, checks and balances disappear. In other words, people are being, on a large scale, brainwashed. And that's a problem. That's not okay. When we're looking at healthy human connection, that is a big problem. Is it a problem for a culture to tell you the, the way in which they prefer things to be? Absolutely not. But as soon as they mandate that it be a certain way every single time, and there are no exceptions, you have full narrative control. Well, once that happens, you are going to end up with, there is no exception I have seen in history at all, a rebellion, a rebellion. And unfortunately, we right now have both Democrats and Republicans in the United States talking about rebellion. The idea of a fighting back against the oppression, the being censored, or the being marginalized. I mean, we, we have to be able to step back and take a look at all the information uncensored so that we can figure out what is most likely the truth. And the truth is not necessarily what you're being told from any one party or any one group of people. The truth is going to be its own thing. You can want something to be true, but that doesn't make it true. So we have to step back, take that 1,000 foot view and say, what's actually going on here? Then we have to dive in to the nitty gritty where we think we might be able to identify some answers and solutions. And then we got to step back again and go to that thousand foot view because the, the risk of censorship is we stop doing that process out of fear. And so we stay stuck in the weeds or stuck at the thousand foot view, missing all the details. We can't do that. That kind of uh, separation is problematic. It's problematic because we then don't know actual reality. Reality is a combination of the up close and the far away. It's both. So what do you do? Number one, protect only those who need it. Only those who need it. If you think you are protecting somebody and they don't need your protection, you are weakening them. And that is a cruel thing to do, and you need to stop doing it. Protect only those who need it. And if you don't know if they need it, have the conversation. Don't assume that you know, well, my, my second cousin said da-da-da-da-da, so everybody who's like that, no, that's false. Not everybody falls into the same. They are all unique. So talk to them like they are unique, quality human beings and ask them if they need your protection. And if they don't, don't give it to them. Matter of fact, if they do, be really cautious because the number two thing is protect them only to the level necessary. 
no further. You get them out of the briar patch and then you let them go. You let them go. You Once you have rescued them from their actual victimhood, you must let them go. That's called autonomy. If you say, okay, I'm going to stay with you now indefinitely to make sure I can protect you every time, you're weakening them. And that's foolish. That would be why if they have a physical handicap, you don't need to protect them mentally. That's, that's crazy. They have a physical handicap. They're not stupid. I hope all that's making sense. Number three, connect with different views on purpose. You must, you must, you cannot assume that one person who, uh, you know, was transgender saw the world this way. So they all see it. No, don't assume that one person who was black or white or brown saw the world this way. So you assume they all no. That is foolish and wrong. When we're looking at healthy perspectives, we cannot be doing that. It's unhealthy. Number four, be open to being challenged. If you offer your help to somebody because you made the mistake, potentially, of assuming they needed your help and they put you in check, back off, back off. Just observe longer. See if they actually do need your help or not. The hard part is people who have mental handicaps of different sorts, they may not understand that they need help. I get that. But if they don't want your help, your help isn't going to make a difference anyway. The only exception, the only exception is if they're going to hurt or kill themselves or somebody else. Otherwise, you have the time to step back and observe and see if they actually need your help. Outside of that emergency situation, that crisis situation, you don't have to help them until it's dire. Now, I'm not saying you let them get to the point where it's dire if they have a mental handicap of sorts, a mental illness or something like that. But you can step back and see just how bad it is real quick. It doesn't take long to figure it out if it's really that bad. Number five, come from a place of care. In your conversations, in your offerings of help and rescue, because people who need to be rescued because they're actual victims, jump in, do that. They need it. But if you don't know for sure, observe and see what's going down. Because if it doesn't come from a real place of care, if it's coming from a place of you want to be the hero, you're being a fool. You, I guarantee, are going to run into situations where you're rescuing people who don't need to be rescued. And that's what's causing censorship. That's what's causing it. People are trying to rescue people who don't need to be rescued. You don't have to rescue them. It cannot come from fear. It has to come from care. 
All right. I've given you a lot. Thank you so much for listening. I hope, I hope this helps you in your conversation and the ongoing conversations about censorship because I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. My hope is you've got some things in here to process, to think about, to, to talk to others about. Go connect with people. Have these conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a look at our website at www.healthyperspectives with a dash in between the healthy and the perspectives. Make sure there's an S at the end.com. So again, www.healthy-perspectives with an S.com. 